Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, October 6th, 2023. It was on this day in 1927 that the jazz singer starring Al Jolson opened, ushering the era of talking pictures. On this day in 1939, in an address to the Reichstag, Adolf Hitler denied any intention of war with Britain and France. Of course, we all know how that turned out. It was on this day in 1973 that Egypt and Syria attacked Israel during the Yom Kippur holiday. In 1979, Pope John Paul II, during a U.S. tour, became the first pope ever to visit the White House. And in 1981, on this day, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was assassinated by terrorist extremists while reviewing a military parade. Today I want to talk about uh, what's going on in Rome right now, the Synod on synodality, and I'm not going to talk about the topics or anything like that, uh, and I don't know how it's proceeding. A lot of people are pretty much in agreement. You know, they aren't sure what this is about, but we sure are getting a lot of information from reactionists and alarmists, and I can tell you as a priest, I am dealing less with answering questions as I am with answering concerns. People think that one agenda or another is going to be uh, pushed during the Synod on Synodality, and it's really more than I can keep track of uh, because the, the rate in which people are concerned, perhaps overly or otherwise, seem to come in rapid fire, mostly from various websites on the internet, whether it be uh, TikTok or YouTube or Twitter. I certainly see things on Facebook people posting things having to do with their concerns or what other people are saying about the synod. And I've even taken up asking some of my fellow priests, almost jovially, asking them, so are you as concerned as everybody else for the synod on synodality? And they kind of smirk at it, you know, because I can tell that they, they're experiencing the same things that I am in terms of you know, things that are said uh, frivolously, uh, irresponsibly, not really knowing the ins and outs of what is going on in Rome. And let, let's face it, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are being spoken about there. But the one thing I hear more than anything is that people are afraid that church teaching is going to be changed. There's going to be an acceptance of, of same-sex marriage. Uh, there's going to be women priests, women's ordination, women deaconesses. And all these rather large changes that they're expecting to happen or are afraid are going to happen. And it usually comes from, of course, the more conservative uh, people in the church. And what I find in that is a general lack of awareness as to the nature of the meeting that's going on in Rome. And they're speaking as if somehow this synod is going to come out with sweeping changes based on the recommendations of a small number and a select group of Catholics and Catholic leaders. And it seems to reflect a misunderstanding of what a synod is 
in relation to other meetings of the church, either currently or throughout history. Now, I know I've given workshops on the topic, especially in light of the Second Vatican Council and what the Second Vatican Council is, and I probably have spoken of it on occasion in this podcast. But I want to go over a little bit of the types of meetings that take place in the church by leaders as well as by other people within the church, what their role has been, and what the, uh, the significance of these various meetings are and how much weight and authority they have. Now, this is a synod that's happening in Rome. And a synod is basically a meeting that is composed of a percentage, but not all, of the episcopacy. Predominantly bishops, yes. But a synod does not include every single bishop throughout the world. That is a general or ecumenical council. Now, in the case of general synods, certain bishops, yes, and cardinals, yes, are going to be selected to participate where others will not. And perhaps the concern in this particular synod is that there isn't as much representation, if you will, of the more conservative wing of the Catholic Church. But there are other kinds of synods and councils. There are patriarchal, national, and uh, what are called primatial councils, which represent a whole patriarchate or a nation or of several provinces. For example, the United States Bishops' Conference is a national council. The bishops meet all the time. They meet at least once a year, I think several times a year. They have their committees and they discuss various issues. We've even seen some controversy and disagreement among them with regard to the prominence of certain teachings or uh, how they're presented or what issues that are facing the nation and the Catholic Church throughout the United States. And even within the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, there are individual conferences of various states. And that's not unusual. But we don't see people panicking like they do of a synod meeting in Rome, because there is no real expectation that these bishops just from the United States or just from a certain state within the United States or just from a certain province or from a certain country in the world are going to come out and make sweeping changes with regard to church teaching. There are also provincial councils, bringing together the bishops of the metropolitan or of an ecclesiastical province and other dignitaries entitled to participate in that conference. For example, I'm currently in Indiana, and the entire state of Indiana and all the dioceses of Indiana, uh, including the Diocese of Evansville, where I am now, are connected to the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. And a provincial council would be of all the dioceses within Indianapolis. Or, not, or the dioceses within that uh, province of Indianapolis, which are basically all the dioceses of the state of Indiana, gathering for a meeting. The bishops of those dioceses gathering for a meeting. Or in such states as Texas, or I'm from California, where you see a large state with more than one archdiocese, say if the archdiocese of Los Angeles were to get together in a provincial council, it would include the leaders and various priests within the dioceses of Los Angeles, San Bernardino, Diocese of Orange, San Diego, and other dioceses within that particular archdiocesan um, a province. San Francisco would include Honolulu, Santa Rosa, Oakland, San Jose, Stockton, and so on. The newly formed Archdiocese of Las Vegas, if they were to have a provincial council, 
of the uh, bishop of that metropolitan of the now newly formed Archdiocese of Las Vegas. It would include the Diocese of Reno and the Diocese of Salt Lake City with their bishops and select priests and perhaps even other leaders, other lay people within those dioceses. Then there could be diocesan synods, which consist of the clergy of the diocese and are presided over by the bishop or the bishop's vicar general. Usually convocations of various dioceses that, in, that are for the clergy could fall under that diocesan synod, although they don't call them synods, but in a couple of weeks right here in the Diocese of Evansville, the priests along with the bishop will be gathering for their regular convocation. Now sometimes those convocations will just deal with workshops to help enhance and, um, and assist priests in their ministry of the parishes. Sometimes they meet to talk about certain issues facing the diocese. Uh, they're not necessarily called diocesan synods and may not classify as such, but a convocation of that sort is similar to that. And then finally, there are mixed synods, a gathering of both civil and ecclesiastical dignitaries. So not just church dignitaries, but it could include civil dignitaries to help settle secular as well as ecclesiastical matters, matters of the church, common matters facing a society in which the church can be a participant in the solving or dealing with those, those issues. We may not see as much of it in the United States because uh, I guess you could say the more liberal side of our society is obsessed with the separation of church and state. They want to exclude anything having to do with religion in any matters of the state. But in other countries, you could see a gathering of the local leaders, the bishops and the civil leaders to jointly discuss and address um, secular or church matters. So these are various types of meetings, but of course the highest of which is the ecumenical council. And these are councils to which the bishops and others entitled to vote are convoked from the entire world, the whole world, under the leadership of the Pope or his uh, delegates. And the decrees of these meetings, these ecumenical councils, having received papal confirmation, bind all Christians. So ecumenical councils is where you will see matters pertaining to the entire church and with papal confirmation bind all Christians. And it's ecumenical in its convocation. It may, f uh, But some may fail to secure the, the participation of the whole church or of the Pope and thus do not have the same rank and authority with ecumenical councils. And one example I like to give in, in presenting this is in 1409, during the Great Western Schism, in which there were two rival popes, one in Avignon, one in Rome, a synod was gathered in Pisa in 1409 to try to solve that crisis. The synod, again, did not include all the bishops, but a select few. The synod deposed the two rival popes and appointed a third pope. Well, because it was just a synod and was not binding to all Catholics, the rival popes did not recognize the synod's authority, remained where they were, and of course the third pope, who was more than happy to be appointed pope by the synod, asserted his authority, and the church was stuck with three popes. It wasn't until the council, the ecumenical council of Constance, that the crisis was solved. But we see in the case of a synod, it does not have the authority of what we like to refer to as infallibility, an authority that would bind all Christians. An ecumenical council enjoys that. And here's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church presents as a definition of infallibility. The Roman pontiff 
head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office. When as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. So that is what we know of as papal infallibility. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in paragraph 891, and in quoting Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, paragraph 25, which itself quotes the First Vatican Council, it goes on to say, the infallibility promised to the Church is also present in the body of bishops when, together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium, above all, in an ecumenical council. So a council is infallible. A synod is not, because a council is convoked of the bishops from the whole world. All the bishops are called to participate, whereas in a synod, that's not the case. It's just a select group. And so I want to be clear on that as people are concerned of the authority or the weight that this synod is going to have. Of course, we should take it seriously. This is a group of leaders chosen by the Vatican, which is no slim pickings. The Pope is our chief shepherd, whether we like him or not, whether we agree with him or not. He's the one that God has chosen to lead our church at this time. And he chose who he wanted to participate. Now, one might say, why doesn't he invite more conservative members to either balance it out or, as someone might desire, dominate the Synod. Now, I can't get inside the Pope's head to adequately interpret why he did not have more conservative leaders participating in this Synod. But when you consider how much of the conservative reaction has been just to leading into the Synod, sometimes I wonder if I really blame the Pope for not including them. He wants to bring about women priests. There's no indication of that. There might be some people who might want to bring it up, but a synod would not have the authority, as I understand them, to bring that about. They want to legitimize same-sex marriage. Again, a matter of faith and morals is a matter of infallibility. The Pope can speak of that, and he has said repeatedly that he won't change that teaching. Or an ecumenical council would discuss that, and it's a decision would be binding, but this is not an ecumenical council. And I don't know that an ecumenical council would address this. But on pastoral matters of how we address these things, how we deal with people who are living in uh, lifestyles that are considered sinful by the church, or we're dealing with how we can expand the ministerial outreach of the church, a synod is there to discuss the matter. But when you see reactionists, whether liberals or conservatives, going off online or on you know, social media to, for the most part, rant and rave, despite a misunderstanding in some cases of what this synod is about, can we really blame the Pope for not including more conservative leaders? I mean, there's even been talk of schism in the church. And who's speaking of that kind of division? The conservatives. I'm not hearing liberals saying, well, if it doesn't go our way, there's going to be a schism in the church. But we're hearing conservatives saying, oh, the church is on its way to schism. The church is on its way to schism. Which is kind of a buzzword. Groups want to get a reaction of people by using buzzwords. And in many ways, we need to just sit back and see what happens. 
keep informed as things come out, but stop being so reactionary until we have something to react to. Stop using the buzzwords. Stop asserting outlandish things that can't be asserted until we see the results of the synod. And wait and see what happens. But when people say, why didn't he ask more conservatives? Well, when you look at how many conservatives are, have been reacting, and, and folks, those of you who know me, know I am not a liberal. I am no liberal by any stretch of the imagination. But I hear what other conservatives are saying, and I frankly am tired of picking up the pieces when people come to me upset, saying this is what they heard on the internet, this is what they read, this is what was on TikTok, this is what was on YouTube, or this is what was posted on Facebook. What do I think? And that's where I'll ask other priests, I'll say, are you as concerned as I am? And they kind of smirk, and they say, no, they're not. Because they know people are reacting to what they're seeing on the internet, and people are saying things irresponsibly on the internet. And they're trying to bring that divide in our church further and further between liberals and conservatives, and that is what the Pope has been criticizing among conservatives, is their rhetoric, and in some cases, their irresponsible rhetoric that is designed to get people worried or to get people to react. And it merely fosters the division that we see in our church between so-called liberals and so-called conservatives, because I, I say so-called because there really is, those are not, those are not theological terms. But let's take a look at those, really, liberals and conservatives in our church. Is there really a difference between the two? Think about it. Now, I know the first reaction would be, oh, of course there's a difference between the two. Liberals are liberals. Conservatives are conservatives. Liberals want to push things uh, to a more un-Catholic form, and conservatives, they want to preserve tradition. They want to preserve the authenticity of the church. But really, do they? There's one thing I've learned, and I've been in, in communities that love to tout themselves as traditional Catholics, and frankly, when I ask them or, or will express traditional things, they have no clue what you're talking about. And sometimes I'll even say, you call yourself a traditional Catholic. And so in many ways, the only real difference between conservatives and liberals is conservatives wouldn't know tradition if it hit them in the face, and the liberals wouldn't care. They know what each side likes, and they label it as they do. But there really is only one big difference between liberals and conservatives in the Catholic Church. And that is their battleground and their buzzwords. That really is it. And think about it. Liberals choose as their battleground Catholic moral teaching. Catholic morality, abortion, birth control, sexual morality. They want the church to either change the teaching or lighten up on it. Liberals choose as their battleground church moral teaching. And to them, it's about love. Conservatives choose as their battleground church worship and liturgy. That's their battleground. They want to preserve tradition. They want the old liturgy back. That's their battleground, church worship and their buzzword is beauty. So for the liberals, it's about love. For the conservatives, it's about beauty. But in fact, it is neither. Conservatives say everything's about beauty, but the thing is, beauty is subjective. Beauty is subjective. 
What is beautiful to me may not be beautiful to someone else. So, of course, what I say is, well, what, what I think is beautiful is the proper beauty. I will go with what the church calls beautiful. Well, how do we know, you know, what the church may call beautiful, someone else may not call beautiful. It's subjective. And therefore, we get you know, kind of full of ourselves. Well, my taste of beauty is the proper beauty. But basically, when we're focusing on beauty and something subjective, then we stop worshiping God. And this is their battleground. They want to worship God more authentically. But we stop worshiping God when things get subjective. How is it? Because we start worshiping ourselves and what we think is beautiful, what we think is right. I think is beautiful, therefore God must think it's beautiful. I move to tears, therefore God has moved to tears. I like it, therefore God must like it. I'm happy with it, therefore God must be happy with it. It's about beauty. I think it's beautiful, so God must think it's beautiful. But someone else might not think it's beautiful. And we end up painting God in our own image when we focus on beauty. And there's where I find the conservatives being led astray, going in the wrong direction. Because in the end, worship is not about beauty. It's about reverence. Certainly we want appealing music. Certainly we want nice sounding music. But it's ultimately about reverence. Reverence toward God, not what I think is beautiful. And a lot of things I hear uh, conservatives speak of, if, if things are getting too liberal or they're being too marginalized, they'll say, well, all we really want to do is follow church teaching. That's all we want to do. Just leave us alone so we can follow church teaching. But even there, their direction is wrong. Worship is not church teaching. It's worship. Church teaching is church teaching. Worship is worship. What the liberals tend to focus on is church teaching. And then I've, I've even run into so-called traditionalists who if something doesn't go their way, they just simply play the martyr and say, oh, well, just pray for our persecutors because we're just persecuted. They get melodramatic the way they're getting now to some degree with regard to what they think is going to happen with regard to this uh, synod. And that's just the conservative side. They focus on beauty, which is subjective. They need to focus on reverence. It's not about church teaching. It's about worship. The liberals, on the other hand, it's Catholic social teaching. They want the church to adjust its teaching on marriage and human sexuality, to include homosexuals, to include birth control, and in some cases to include even abortion. Abortion may be a little further to the left to their end. Very few, I would even say liberals, uh, would say abortion would be inclusive of that. But certainly when it comes to matters of homosexuality, blessing, same-sex marriages, birth control, and so on, that is a matter of church teaching. And they label everything, well, it's about love. And you even see Catholics talking about, well, it's about love. We can't be in for love. Love always wins. It's about love. You must be against love. If you don't agree with me, you're not about love, you're about hate. And love is their buzzword. When in the end, Catholic moral teaching is not about love. It's about purity before God. Purity before God. Just like with the conservatives, it's not about beauty, it's about reverence. With the liberals, it's not about love, it's about purity. And we must go before God with a purity of heart. We must worship God with a purity of heart. That's why confession is so important. And if we've ever read, and I hope to eventually talk a little more about this in a podcast, read Dante's Divine Comedy, love is at the heart of everything, including what sends people to hell. 
because they loved the wrong things. They loved in the wrong way. So once we put love as a label on anything, to, as a justification for everything, I mean, we even see people now no longer referred to in their traditional term, but they call, you know, for example, minor attracted adults because it's about love. Everything is justified by love. When it's not about love, when it comes to Catholic moral teaching, it's about purity. It's about following God's command. And so aside from the battleground of the buzzwords, there really is no difference between liberals and conservatives. But I will say this, I will say this, when it comes to talking of secession, whether they hope for it, dread it, or just use the term to get a reaction out of people and make them worried, who has spoken and even acted more with regard to secession? The liberals or the conservatives? Sure, the liberals would love to see women's ordination. Sure, the liberals would love to see birth control and uh, relaxed and, and the teaching on human sexuality opened up a little more. But they stick with it. They stick with the church. Not all of them, yes, some have left to you know, a more palatable Christian denomination that's pretty much for everything. But for the most part, what the liberal wing sticks with it, hoping that the church might change encouraging the church to go in that direction. Whether or not it's the Holy Spirit's will, they don't seem to be too concerned, but at least they are sticking with the church. What have we seen since the Second Vatican Council with the traditionalists and the conservatives? We have seen conservative Catholics stop going to Mass because the Mass changed. They stopped receiving communion because they consider the new Mass invalid. They go to Schismatic churches declaring that the other church is schismatic and teaching their children to have disrespect for priests who are not conservative or sisters who are not conservative or the mass if it's not the traditional Latin mass. And even now down to today, we see the conservatives talking more of schism and separation. They blame it on the liberals, but they're the ones who keep talking about it. Not the liberals. The conservatives are the ones who are saying, if it goes in a certain direction, we're leaving. But we don't see as many liberals leaving because it's not going in a certain direction. They're sticking with it. Now, granted, not all conservatives will leave, and not all conservatives are talking about schism and leaving. But what we hear of those who are, the vast majority of them are conservative traditionalists. And schism is not traditional. Separation in the church is not traditional. Unity is traditional. That's what Christ called for. That's what Christ prayed for the night before he died in the Gospel of John. That they may be one as you, Father, are one in me and I in you, so they may be one in us. And I hear more talk of division and schism from conservatives and traditionalists, so-called traditionalists, than I have ever heard of in liberal circles. And I am not liberal. I value church teaching. I want it to remain consistent. I don't want it to change. I don't think it should change. And I don't think the church has the authority to change moral teaching. How we apply it pastorally and deal with it, of course, that can change. Jesus himself told the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. That does not mean he condoned adultery. He still said, go and sin no more. But whether we're liberal or conservative, traditional or progressive, whether we know tradition if it hit us in the face or don't, or whether we'd care if it hit us in the face or don't. I would hope that as this synod is now in process, we would tone it down. 
and stop getting all high and mighty, self-righteous and hoity-toity over whether we are more traditional or conservative or whether we are more liberal. Don't gloat if you think there are going to be liberal changes, and don't be alarmist if you think there shouldn't be. Let's have something that is more traditional than anything else. Faith that ultimately God is running this church. He's running it as much with Pope Francis as he was with Pope Benedict, even though when Pope Francis was elected, someone told me, oh, the Holy Spirit has finally broken through. I said, like it did with Pope Benedict? And they said, oh, no, for the first time since Vatican II, which means that they believe that there was no Holy Spirit since Vatican II, and with Pope Francis, the Holy Spirit finally broke through. And then, of course, the traditionalists who think the Holy Spirit left the church with Vatican II, and probably even more so after the, um, after the retirement of Pope Benedict. But the most traditional thing we can engage in right now is faith. Have faith. We've seen worse things in the history of the church, and even as the result of synods, like the Synod of Pisa, which hoped to solve the problem of two popes and ended up creating three. And guess what? The church survived. But this is only a synod. The Synod of Ephesus declared the Pope the successor to Peter, but it was not until the Council of, of Chalcedon that it became an official point of faith in which we recognize all previous and subsequent popes as successors to Peter. Look it up, Council of Chalcedon. It was a Council of Ephesus that declared Mary the mother of God as a consequence of its declaration that the eternal word taking flesh in Jesus was divine from the moment of conception. This is a synod let it play out. It will spark discussion and resolve, and the Holy Spirit will work within that. It's not working in people who engage in excessive anger, fury, or dissensions and divisions. You don't believe me? Read Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says, those who engage in anger, fury, and dissensions will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're right up there with the sexual sinners. Read it. I won't tell you where because I want you to read the whole letter. But let's tone it down a little bit and have faith that in the end, God is going to bring this church where God wants it to be. And it may be someplace we don't necessarily want it to be, but guess what, folks? I'm not God. You're not God. None of us are God. Let's pray for the outcome. Let's hope for the best, but let's have faith in the church as God wants it to be, not in a church as we would have it, as if we were God. And let this meeting play out. Let this synod play out. I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about when it's done and when it publishes its uh, results and its, its resolutions. But it's not an ecumenical council. Let's wait for the outcome and then engage in, in the discussion Afterwards, And the Holy Spirit will work in as much in that as it's worked in any other process of our church. But folks, it's not the end of the Catholic Church. Pope Francis is not an anti-pope. And let's, let's be quiet about schism and divisions. And work on how the results of this will lead to unity. While we also remain faithful to church moral teaching. As well as the tradition of its evangelical outreach to those on the margins, which is what Pope Francis wants us to be renewed in during his papacy. So unless I just keep going and going, because there's a lot to talk about, a lot to really consider and discuss, 
just leave that for now, and hopefully we'll see a toning down now that the Senate has under, is underway. But let's wait for those results. Thanks for listening. And with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.